I am Janet Lee Sheriff. I'm the host of Kissing the Cod, uh, All Things Gold. Welcome to today's edition. We have a special guest here today, a friend of mine and a colleague, uh, Richard Goldfarb. Uh, Rich is a uh, globally recognized expert in uh, orogenic gold deposits and worked for 36 years with the U.S. Geological Survey. He is known around the world for his expertise in this area, and I'm very happy he's here today to tell us a bit more about himself. Uh, welcome, Rich. Good uh, to see you again today. Thank you very much, Janet. It's uh, good to be on the show here, and uh, I'm happy to tell you whatever I can tell you. <laughs> well, um, we've known each other uh, several years uh, through different jurisdictions, and um, I was really excited when we moved into Newfoundland and Labrador, and you had uh, such an interesting knowledge and experience um, in the area and the whole structure. But maybe let's just start first. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, my background was, I, you know, I came from New York City, and I didn't even know what geology was. And I was a math major at college, and I go, I don't like this. And I walked into some room across the hall, beginning of my sophomore year, and there were a bunch of guys drinking beer and just BSing. And I said, you know, what are you guys majoring? I hate math. And one guy said, I major in geology. I said, I'm from New York. I've never even heard about geology. What is it? And he said, we walk around the woods and drink beer. I said, that sounds great. I went in and signed up with a department chair and I've been doing it ever since. So I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in geology, went out to the Bay Area. I was at Berkeley for a while thinking I was going to be a geomorphologist uh, working in a PhD program at Berkeley. I ended up dropping out for a while, hanging out on the street, but then went back to school. I went to School of Mines in uh, Reno and got a master's in hydrogeology. And I still knew nothing about mineral deposits. And then a friend of mine called me up from the uh, USGS, Dave Leach, who's one of the best guys in the world on lead zinc. And said, you know, the head of the Alaska program, he had just quit the USGS. If you get in your car and get to Denver in two days, you can run the uh, USGS uh, geochemical exploration program in Alaska for them because they need a body. And I just finished my master's in hydrology. I said, I don't know much about ore deposits. And he said, well, it's the government. You can sort of fake it. You don't need to know a lot. So I drove over to Denver. And three days later, I was on a 12-week helicopter contract in Alaska doing a geochemical exploration program all around the Gulf of Alaska. And... Uh, you know, I came back and then I started doing a PhD at the University of Colorado while I was working on the USGS, doing it in economic geology, because I figured since I'm studying mineral deposits in Alaska, I should know something about mineral deposits. And eventually, after three years, we put together a huge geochemical survey of all South Central Alaska, like I don't know, 5,000 stream sediments and glacial moraine sediments over all the ice fields and around all the mining districts there. And at that time, everyone was talking about, oh, these are just epithermal deposits scattered around the Gulf of Alaska. I was working with a geologist on the project, metamorphic geologist named Marty Miller, and she put together the first metamorphic map of 
Southern Alaska at the same time I was completing my geochemical survey. And we started looking at the data and anywhere there was gold on glaciers and streams overlaid green schist facies metamorphic rocks. There was no gold in high grade rocks. There was no detrital gold in low grade rocks. And we said, there's granites everywhere. How can these be epithermal if there's a correlation with metamorphic grade? And at that time, the first models of relating gold to metamorphism or orogenic gold were coming out by workers who worked in Precambrian areas. Rob Kerich and Bill Fife in the Abitibi in Canada and David Groves and Neil Phillips in Western Australia were putting together the orogenic model for these Archean terrains. And we said, you know, the same thing's happening in younger environments. These aren't epithermal gold deposits related to causative granites around the Gulf of Alaska. These are the same type of gold deposits that they have in Archean terrains. And our exploration strategy and the report we ended up writing was, you need to look at the metamorphic history of the area, the correlation between gold and green schist. And that's what got me into this model and uh, developing uh, many of my ideas on orogenic gold that I've worked on for a lot of decades. Amazing. I, I, um, I love the how you became a geologist going out and drinking beer. Good. <laughs> it's honest. It's really honest. You know? <laughs> when I decided where to go to university in Canada, I did the same thing. It was like, well, that looks like a nice campus. I think I'll go there. It was fun. It kept me outdoors. All the you know, I love the outdoors, and uh, you know, going from being a math major to uh, a major where I could be out in the woods every day was just great. And then it continued. And it was a dream to work every summer in Alaska for the USGS. I worked every summer from 1981 through about 2012 in Alaska. So it was a pretty ma an amazing experience. So, so how many papers have you? authored or co-authored because I, I'm absolutely blown away every time I, I pick up a paper your name's on it on projects that in, in the Yukon in 86 like how do you how, how do you do so much sort of being an old guy and I've been around for a while um <laughs> I, uh, I probably authored about 300 papers but then that's over like 40 years and to write a good paper takes me a full year but at the same time, I'll write my own paper. I love working with students and young people, as well as many of the people in the mining community. So, and I'm one of these people that unfortunately never says no. So I, you know, I get involved with helping many people try to get their information out. I know what many journals require as far as what material makes sense and is acceptable to reviewers. So a lot of the papers that I'm an author on have been helping young people or people at mines get their uh, papers in publication. I try to write one paper of my own that has impact a year. Uh, there's so many people that just turn out paper after paper, but to write a good paper really takes a long, long time. And, uh, you know, I've been doing it for a while and I enjoy it. Uh, and, and you and you travel a lot. You you do you do a lot of site visits as well. Yeah, 
you know, once your name gets out there, you know, early on in the 1980s, when I started studying these deposits, I was more a lab person studying the geochemistry of these deposits, their isotopes, looking at the fluids that form these, trying to understand the models of these. And then in the mid 1990s, I met a guy named David Groves, who's one of the leading experts on gold geology and tectonics and deposits. And David said, ah, you don't need to look at this geochem stuff. I don't believe it anyway. You need to look at the big picture. And I said, yeah, you know, I don't like the arm wave like you, but you know, he got me into looking at a big picture and the tectonics and how that relates to gold. And so I started looking at these more globally. I did a number of sabbaticals in the late 1990s with David and his group in Western Australia at the time. His Center for Exploration Targeting was the leading place in the world for the study of gold. From about 1990 to 2000, the uh, center there at the university had about 20 economic geologists all studying gold resources. So it was a phenomenal opportunity for me to go there and interact with David and many of his crews and look at some of the big picture stuff. And from there, you know, I got many invites elsewhere in the world to look at deposits in Africa, uh, the Chinese Geologic Survey uh, uh, contacted me and I've done lots and lots of work trying to put the pictures of China together over the years. Um, done a lot in Australia, uh, Brazil. Um, so I've got a lot of opportunities once I started looking at the big picture of this type of gold what's important, what's not important. And it's opened a lot of doors for me. And I enjoy having friends in every country. Uh, you get off the plane and not only is it fun to work, it's fun to see many of the people you know and uh, hang out and have beers with them and uh, things like that. So it's been a fun career. Nice. Now, and you're a, you're a university professor in China? Yeah, I'm a university professor at the China University of Geosciences in Beijing, which has about 30,000 students all studying geology. Wow. <laughs> but uh, it, it's been a learning experience. When I started in China, if you look at the papers from uh, the 1980s and the early 1990s, China was sort of a mystery. A lot of the publications by the older Chinese that didn't know English, that didn't have access to Western papers were essentially just copying and pasting from Western papers. But as the younger generation, especially as China opened up in the mid 1990s, got more involved and interacted more with Western geologists, it was a chance to collaborate and better understand the deposits there. So over the last 22, 23 years, I've probably been to China a hundred times and visited many hundreds of deposits uh, with a lot of colleagues like Craig Hart and Lance Miller and uh, many of our Chinese colleagues. And we've been able to better understand what's in China and slowly put the geologic history of China together with an understanding of the mineral deposit types of China. And it all culminated about two years ago, if anyone's interested in China, we put out a 700 page volume by the Society of Economic Geologists on mineral deposits of China, 
we have a chapter on porphyries of China, scones of China, orogenic deposits of China, epithermal deposits of China, each written by one international expert and many of the Chinese colleagues who have worked with us for decades. So it's been quite an experience in China and uh, that's been one of the fun experiences in my career. Oh, I bet. You know, it's funny you mentioned Craig Hart's name. That's the paper that I saw from 86 that you guys did together on Brewery Creek, which I was running for a while. So that was, um, you know, 30,000 students studying geology. That's that's beyond what our schools are doing here in North America. I, I just can imagine the talent and the capacity that's going to be created out of that volume of geologists. The problem on the jobs, though, there's just a limited amount of jobs in China for geologists. So a lot of these young people end up getting jobs outside geology. They all want to be university professors, but there's a limited amount that they can do. And then there's always political issues in China, like the companies come in at the end of the kids' careers at the university and interview them for jobs. And the companies will only interview the men's students, not the women's students. And when I teach classes, I have the students are women. So I got angry about that. And I asked the university, uh, the university president, I said, how can you give these kids degrees and half of them aren't allowed to interview? He said, ah, oh, Rich, things change slowly in China. And I know they do, but things like that are difficult to deal with there. I still get frustrated with some of the uh, issues there. Also underground, it's difficult for women to go underground in China because of the historic uh, bad luck, uh, ridiculous things. So there's still a lot of issues in China with geology and things like that. Even the education at the universities, it's getting better. They have incredible analytical tools, but some of the courses still need a lot of effort. I mean, there's a strong emphasis in China on analytical tools. They have some of the best analytical tools in the world, but often they're rock in the box type studies where a professor will bring back samples and just give the students those samples and say, do your PhD on these. And I talk to the oh. students, they've never even seen a deposit they're studying. And so issues like that are important. We need to get more field-based type work in China. Yeah, yeah. Well, things change slowly sometimes in North America too. So <laughs> having been a woman in senior management in a mining industry, it's, um, but I, I am proud of the fact Change. What's that, sorry? It's been an amazing change in China forward over the decades I've been there, and things will slowly keep going, hopefully in a good direction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that I um, was one of the things I'm proud of is uh, I ran a, a project uh, in northern Canada where half of my field crew was, was female. And at one point, it, over half the camp staff uh, combined with the technical was over 50% female. So it, it, it's getting there. We're getting there. It's step by step, right? Now we see that in the scientific organizations also. Diversity is improving at societies like SEG, side of economic geologists, and many other of the academic uh, areas of economic geology. Yeah, definitely. So, so I want to go back to your global 
focus on on geology and systems because that's how we got into a conversation about newfoundland and labrador and what's going on there so maybe talk a little bit about the bigger picture about the, the structures and i'll let you take it away from there because it's it's it brings it down into focus about what you see there once you understand the bigger picture yeah you know one thing that got me excited got me involved with the company that we're both involved with c to c in Finland, is that the geology is so favorable and really is Newfoundland is one of the spots on the globe where we have huge potential that has barely been touched. I think part of the reason is places like Newfoundland, maybe an analog would be Finland, uh, uh, Central Lapland Greenstone Belt in Northern Finland, maybe some areas of Russia where we've had glacial till, thick meters of glacial till covering the geology. So even though the geology is favorable, it hasn't had the exploration history that places such as the California Motherload have had, or the South Island of New Zealand, or other areas where we've had rapid uplift, erosion, huge alluvial deposits that have led prospectors to find the load deposits over the last 200 years at least. In places like Finland and Newfoundland that are relatively flat now and are covered by till, we've had showings, but not significant showings where we've had a modern day gold rush till now. And in Newfoundland, historically, there's been some mining. Most of that mining though, especially for gold, has been on different types of gold deposits than the present day gold rush. Uh, a deposit such as uh, Hope Brook, which has been known for a long time in Newfoundland. Uh, Benoit Dubay with the Geologic Survey of Canada studied it 25 years ago, is a high sulfidation epithermal deposit. It formed at shallow levels related to granites. And it's sort of, there's a number of these up and down the Eastern seaboard of the United States. In the Carolinas, there's also deposits like that. And these formed before the rocks were part of Laurentia, North America. They formed in an oceanic setting before the terrains were fully added to North America. Similarly, both on the Bayvert Peninsula and down the center of Newfoundland, there are seafloor VMS deposits, such as Buchins or Rambler, that have base metals along with gold and were historically prospected and mined. And those two were originally seafloor deposits that got added to North America. So historically, that's what most of the mining in Newfoundland has been about. There have been a few small orogenic deposits, but it wasn't until the Valentine Lake deposit was recognized as multi-million ounces that all of a sudden people said, hey, you know, the geology here looks really good. And what looks really good is orogenic gold deposits are products of new crust being added to the edge of continents, being heated or metamorphosed for the first time 
When you metamorphose a rock, three to 4% of that rock volume changes to fluid. And if you have the right plumbing system where you concentrate that fluid, which are mainly large fault zones that are moving, you can form large gold deposits. And whenever you have metamorphism, you're almost always gonna have gold in a metamorphic fluid because during metamorphism at three or four or 500 degrees, pyrite breaks down to the iron sulfide pyrotite that has less sulfur. And background pyrite has uh, gold in the pyrite. If you pick up, say, a, a shale it, and you analyze it, it's going to have 15 parts per billion gold in it. But if you see finely disseminated oceanic pyrite in that 15 part per billion gold rock and zap it with a laser, that grain of pyrite is going to have 600 ppb gold or maybe 1.1 part per million gold, which explains why the rock has 15 parts per billion gold. So when you heat that rock and the pyrite breaks down to pyrotite, you just don't move the sulfur out of the gold. You That sulfur also, out of the pyrite, that sulfur also carries the gold out of the pyrite and the arsenic out of the pyrite. And so that fluid, that three, 4% of the rock changing the fluid is gonna be enriched in gold. And if, the fluid is focused, you form an ore deposit. If your fluid is not focused, you still have the same amount of gold, but you have little veins all over the countryside that are not economic for a company. And it's been recognized that we have the metamorphism of these terrains or blocks that have been accreted in Newfoundland about 400 million years ago. They've been metamorphosed and it's looking like Certainly, these faults are very favorable for orogenic gold that formed in the late stages of this tectonic event. Um, there are many, many favorable features. One thing I like about Newfoundland is not just the fault system, but the fault system uh, from Newfound Gold's area on uh, you know the. Uh, the Eastern Faults, the Dog Bay Line, and uh, the, uh, what's it called? The uh, Gander River Ultramafic Fault, all the way over to the West is about 200 kilometers wide. That's a hell of a long wide belt of gold bearing fault systems. You know, you look at the Motherlode or Juno or in Colombia, the Frontino Belt, there's maybe one or two major faults spread over 20 kilometers. Here we have a complex system of faults spread over 200 kilometers. So that suggests under the till layer, a huge perspective area that would excite me. Um, areas that may be like that, West Africa with 300 million ounces of gold, uh, Victoria, Australia, is about a couple of hundred kilometers wide, the faults there. We have probably 150 million ounces gold when you throw in all the alluvial gold that's been there historically. So I think the potential is very high. And then we look at the geology in those 200 kilometers and we have favorable rock types like shales, which we have back arc shales that have high gold content. During metamorphism, you can concentrate a lot of gold. 
we have a lot of the earliest seafloor BMS deposits I talked about. Is that a bonus when you metamorphose rocks? Because that says, you know, rather than 15 PPB gold over a large area, you have a lot more gold and sulfur to heat up, especially the VMS deposits down the Valentine Lake area, down the center or the Dunnage zone or whatever, down the center of Newfoundland, you cook those up. You know, no one knows for sure, but that may be a bonus to a gold rich area. We look at the Abitibi in central Canada or East Africa or Egypt, near a tree or in Ethiopia, we have slightly older seafloor VMS deposits, then the rocks are metamorphosed, and then we have a huge gold endowment. So it's not critical, but it's certainly a bonus when you have older VMS deposits being cooked to metamorphose with the other rocks. You have a lot of tight faults close together. I look at newfound goals properties, for example, and they have the you look at the Dog Bay line and maybe that Gander River Ultramafic Fault right next to it. And then you look at all their properties right in between. Those sort of look like they're in connecting faults between major faults. Those are hugely important environments. I look uh, further south along some of their properties and there's the Mount Payne intrusive body. Shearing along that margin is important. You can look at Valentine Lake and a lot of the mineralization there is in the Proterozoic intrusive complex along the Valentine Lake shear zone. So the complex geology where you have a lot of jogs in the faults in Newfoundland and you have competent intrusions near less competent rocks, so you have all sorts of stress variations, makes it such a favorable area for gold prospectivity. And I think there's all sorts of targets that have barely been touched or understood within this area. I mean, certainly we're starting to see some recent uh, work by Newfoundland geologists doing good academic work on this. Uh, some guy, Ian Hansberger, Sandeman, have written a few recent papers starting to address the regional geology of the gold fields there and how they relate to these. And I think as we see more and more studies, we'll be able to better target uh, certain parts of this uh, province that I think certainly in the long run could be a 50, 100 million ounce province. There's no reason it shouldn't. The geology is all right for that. I like that you brought up the geological survey. Um, you know, I think the, the Newfoundland and Labrador geological survey um, it's doing a fabulous job, especially in times when there's a lot of cutbacks in governments. And, um, and they often don't get that recognition because people are appreciative of the government as a whole. But I think you understand uh, probably more than others from having worked so long for a geological survey. It's a very separate type of entity and very important in, in the development of a region. And I think it's important that companies look at some of their recent work. Uh, that group uh, from the survey recently put a paper in the last issue of GSA Bulletin, which is probably the best comprehensive paper so far on the Valentine Lake area and the gold potential and the timing and the relationship with gold tectonics in that area. Um, it's, it's a paper that anyone working in Newfoundland should give a look to. 
And if there are if people are interested in the VMS deposits out there because they have gold potential in the same area, Steve Piercy at Memorial University there has published a number of excellent papers on the massive sulfide gold deposits that sit in the same terrains. So there's a lot of good work out there. I think what we'll do is, is uh, put up a link to the geological survey so people can start looking for those because I think it's it's important. The other thing that I, I really like what I've heard from you is um, your discussion on economic deposits. Because it's one thing to find gold, it's another thing to find economic gold. And from what my understanding is, you feel that Newfoundland offers that opportunity for economic gold deposits. Uh, you know, when I started coming back to Alaska, when I started in Alaska, my first summer in Alaska, I knew nothing about gold deposits. And working the area below the ice fields in Prince William Sound and the Kenai Mounds, all the glaciers were starting to retreat. And everywhere I looked on this nice polished rock, I would find, you know, I don't know, six centimeter wide veins that go for a meter or two filled with visible gold. And I was so excited. I said, you know, I can quit the government after you. I'm just going to stake this out to be wealthy. And then over the years, you learn no one cares because it wasn't focused in the faults. Um, that is so critical. You have the same amount of gold, but unless you have fluid focusing, it's not going to be economic. And that's such an important part of this anywhere. Any metamorphic belt has potential, but the right plumbing system is critical. And the plumbing system looks so good in Newfoundland, where a lot of the gold, especially where the faults are tight, and again, taking just because I've read more about it, because there's been more releases, Newfound Golds area, you know, they have this Appleton Fault sitting right between the Gander River Fault and the Dog Bay Fault. And we have a lot of these strike-slip movements between faults, you rotate blocks, you open spaces, so the geology is so favorable for focusing of fluids on the Valentine Lake, Victoria Lake shares also the same story. And even some of the gold deposits that were mined near the VMS deposits in the Northwest part of Newfoundland earlier on, all that geology looks so good for fluid focusing. So I think economic potential is huge there. And also if you had smaller deposits in this day and age, environmental bonds, startup, infrastructure, working with the local communities is a lot more important than in the past. So in the past, all right, 100,000 ounces might be good, especially at today's gold prices, but the amount of investment to start, you really need to start having one, two million ounce deposits to get medium size or large size companies interested in sulfide type gold deposits because it really is a lot of work to get something like that going. And I think those type of deposits exist here in Newfoundland. Certainly we know there's one already at Valentine Lake and some of the other company uh, discoveries suggest there's gonna be more. In fact, if you say Valentine Lake is the only proven one with more than a million ounces. If you look at this deposit type worldwide, 
Sometimes you'll have an isolated magmatic type deposit like Bingham Porphyry in uh, Utah. Many magmatic hydrothermal deposits can be isolated around the causative pluton. When you look at these type deposits, orogenic coal deposits, there's never just one. They occur in belts. You see many large deposits all together, whether it's California Motherlode, whether it's Juno, whether it's Abitibi, Yulgon, West Africa. So we're going to have more million ounce deposits here than just Valentine Lake. And that's just a fact because we see that anywhere in the world. So what is it that has delayed this opportunity for Newfoundland? Because, you know, I think people are, are wondering why now is there a gold rush um, in, in modern day? And I think you, you, you went into some of it. Um, you know, it's, it's covered in till, it's harder to, you know, take isolated outcrops and, and, and model it. But why Newfoundland and why now? I think uh, what you just said is the main reason. You know, people tend to explore where it's easiest and prospecting where there's a lot of surface exposure has dominated the exploration for gold over the centuries. And now as the easy deposits have been found, we're starting to look more and more under cover, under shallow cover, or the deposits that have not been found. And certainly the first places to look under cover are places that have favorable geology that may be covering many of the outcrops. Um, or, or favorable job that so the outcrops are covered. And Newfoundland, as we've learned more and more from a lot of, there's about half a dozen tech, great tectonics geology papers on Newfoundland in the last two decades. And I can email copies to anyone. I have them on my computer, the PDFs. But, uh, you know, once you start looking at the geology in Newfoundland, you go, there should be gold here. And with modern methods, especially improved methods of geochemistry and geophysics of looking undercover. That's why places like Newfoundland are now the sites of new gold rushes. I do a lot with Firefox, another gold company in Finland, and it's the same story. That area has been largely ignored because of the till. And now we have at, uh, 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 one, at uh, one place we had at, Kit at Kitla, we have the largest gold deposit in Europe and along the Circa line, uh, Rupin and Orion and uh, Firefox are discovering more and more mineralization. And it's the same as, fin as uh, Newfoundland. As we start looking at these pla places, they have the right geology. They've just been ignored because it's been difficult to look under the till. And there's no reason somewhere like Newfoundland should not have the same potential as all these other areas that are better explored. Now, Newfoundland also, if we look up and down the uh, Eastern seaboard, the Appalachian origin, there is orogenic gold of the same area all the way from Alabama and Georgia, Bruno, Nova Scotia, through Newfoundland and into the British Isles. But the geology, simply looks better in Newfoundland than anywhere else in the Appalachian origin. 
The Southern Appalachians were mined prior to the Civil War, but mainly for oxide regolith gold. And they just don't have the degree of tectonism, the, the moderate to high temperature metamorphism that Newfoundland has. And if we go north into the British Isles, you know, there's a couple of maybe 1 million ounce deposits up there, but it doesn't have the amount of subduction and complex structure that Newfoundland has. So if you're a structural geologist and go from Alabama up to Wales and Southern Scotland and Northern Ireland, Newfoundland would stand out to you as certainly an area of greatest complexity and most favorable for gold, most subduction. There's a back off basin. Uh, the Red Indian line is sort of a back off basin area where you had the suturing, you had extension, you had reactivation of the faults that form that basin and then strike slip. That's almost identical to the scenario we see in West Africa where extensional faults were reactivated as transpressional strike slip faults and very favorable for gold. So, so much in Newfoundland, as we understand the geology is saying, let's start looking under that till carefully because there is no reason this should not be a world-class province. So Newfoundland is, is the perfect storm. I think so. I mean, you, it, it's hard to find anything to object to. It's just now is the hard part, trying to understand under that cover the geology and how to predict where best to look. And I think this is one area geophysics is going to, and base of till geochemistry are going to play huge roles in future discoveries. Lots of work and lots of patience and, and learning, but um, I, 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 I know we've talked about it. Uh, field, field trip to the rock this summer? That would be great. I would love it. Um, I've uh, been to Newfoundland a number of times, but just uh, I've never been out to the uh, mines and I would love to. I've been up there doing classes for the geologic survey, or at Memorial University for Steve Piercy and some of the other uh, professors and their students. I always have a great time uh, with the beer with the students at all the pubs in St. John's, but it would be nice to get out to the field there sometime and look at deposits. So I'm always welcome. To, I'll always be glad to pop around there. Yeah, I want to. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll grab Bill. We'll make a point of getting out there and take some some geos uh, and do a big trip. That sounds like a great idea. We have to work around your music schedule. That's important. I have all my Red Rocks concert tickets for the summer. So uh, if we can fit them in the weeks that I'm not uh, at Red Rocks, I'm ready to go. And we were uh, earlier talking about our mutual admiration for, for the music of Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, yeah, uh, I, my first summer in Alaska, we were talking about how I listened, I was in a bar in Seward in the house band, or the, the bar that served dinner, and every night the house band was a band from Clint Eastwood's Spaghetti Westerns, the Harmonicats, and I heard that music over and over again, it's uh, sort of in my mind always after six weeks of every dinner listening to it. Ennio Marconi, it's uh, <laughs> hauntingly beautiful music, and yeah, I love, uh, I love, I love old westerns. It's it's that whole, you know, brave new world discovery. You know, it's 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 what we do, right? Yeah. No, I felt like it was in the old west when I saw working in Alaska. It was the old days. Uh, 
it was still a lot of wild. Uh, I won't get into some of the stories here. <laughs> a lot of nights I'm wondering, should I hang out in this bar? It's fun, or am I going to get killed in here? Um, so yeah, it's it's been fun doing this as a career. Yeah, what a great what a great career you've had, Rich, uh, and lots more to come. Um, huh? It's. It's been great talking. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I always learn something whenever I talk to you. You have a great way of explaining things for non-technical people like myself. And I really, I, I, can, see, I, can, I can see the teacher in you. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. And I'm glad to be here. And anybody in the Newfoundland group up there that uh, needs anything, you know, they can just always email me. I'm glad to help out where I can because... I'm excited about what's happening up there. Perfect. We'll pop up an email so um, we can get some information to you. Um, well, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us at Kissing the Cod. And thank you today for our fabulous guest, Rich Goldfarb. Um, we'll see you again next time. And as always, we appreciate your time. You know, time is valuable. And we uh, thank you for spending some with us today. Glad to do it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.